everyone. It's Sarah. This week, I made a spontaneous decision to do something a little different. It's always been my intention to change up the episodes, but this is the first time I'm doing that by talking about some questions that I've been frequently asked online. I had some general thoughts in my head beforehand, but I wasn't sure where it was going to go. It definitely got personal. Listening back, I've hesitated over the last few days about whether or not I should publish the whole thing, but I decided to do it anyway. The reason I hesitated is mainly because I got emotional, which you'd think I'd be used to five months into a pregnancy. And the other reason is that I do mention very briefly the topic of potential infertility. And I know this can be a very painful and sensitive subject to many. So please know that 24 minutes in, this comes up for about a minute. If it's best for you to skip, I want you to know that it's coming. With that said, let's have an honest talk about all of the wonderful things that rolled out the red carpet for my husband, Kirk, to stand out in a dark, dark dating world. I crack myself up. Okay, solo episode, just you and me here alone, having a little chat. I have had some topics that I have written up, uh, but one of them was asked on Instagram a few times, green flags that led to my marriage to Kirk. I haven't told my story about what even got me here, why I am interested in these topics that I'm focusing on in this podcast. And that's because honestly, I think most of my audience already knows a lot of people that have found me on Instagram, found me purely through the Something Was Wrong podcast, which is hosted by Tiffany Reese. And her first season happens to cover my story of when I broke off an engagement back in 2018. The way that it happened was pretty larger than life, very Lifetime movie-esque. So if you really want the more cliffhangery, more immersive experience, complete with interviews with my family, roommates, you know, friends, things like that, I would highly recommend going and listening to season one of the podcast called Something Was Wrong. One day I'll probably dedicate an episode to explaining everything. I do know though that I will have a book here, hopefully in the next year. I'm working with an indie publishing company to actually get this thing written. When I was starting this podcast, I put feelers out there for some questions. If anybody wanted to hear from me directly and not from guests telling their stories necessarily, what do I have to say that you would be curious to hear about? And one of the common questions was, well, after my experience, even though it was relatively short in the grand scheme of things, a grand total of, I think, eight and a half to nine wild months, one of the common questions is what were the green flags that led you to being okay with marrying Kirk or deciding to marry Kirk, my husband? We got married in February of 22. And I think maybe from the outside, it could also look like we moved fairly fast, but this was a very, very different scenario. And there is something about going through the wrong thing really, really hard. Like I went, I was all in. I didn't just have a quick brush with someone who was unhealthy. We went hard and fast, eight days from being married. So I learned a lot of what to run from in that time. So by the time a couple of years had passed, 
I'd put in a lot of work when it came to healing, getting myself back together, reestablishing my life. It had not been a smooth road. By the time Kirk rolled around, I already felt like a different human and my circumstances were very, very different. And then the adventures that we went through together taught us a whole heck of a lot about each other in a short time and not in the way that everything is artificially accelerated, if that makes sense, but just in a very natural life circumstance way, which I'll get into in a second. I'm going to start off just by answering and talking about little things about him that really stood out and meant a lot to me. One thing that I, and I've taken some notes here, so I'm going to kind of look at those a little bit, but he not only had a lot of friends, they were high caliber people and these people knew him really well. I just comparing to my ex and I hate to do that in real life, but right now this is the time for that. So I'm going to do it all I want. He name dropped a lot. My ex did. And what's interesting is looking back, he very much cherry picked. And when I did actually meet these people or speak with them, looking back, it was clear that they didn't have a deep history with him. They hadn't seen him in multiple circumstances. They might have worked on a project with him or seen him in one setting or one context, like a church group or something where he was performing really well, or he was in a certain mode. So they had one facet of him. They didn't get to see the rest of him or for long periods of time. And Kirk has people that have done life with him, whether it's overseas travel, serving in church or just day-to-day stuff. Like he had roommates. He had people that he lived with that still liked him after a long period of time. One of those, a friend he went in and bought a house with and had roommates that lived with him. And his friends spoke very, very highly of him and they saw him on a frequent basis. So it meant a lot to me that they knew him well and they still admired him and like genuinely admired him and loved him. He also had longevity with things like employment and other communities. I know that not everyone's necessarily involved in church, but he had been involved in church consistently. He stuck it out. Again, I'm not saying that if you've switched around a lot, that that's a red flag. There are many life circumstances that come into play. But in his case, it was nice. I wouldn't have judged him if he had switched jobs a few times or if he had gone to different churches and maybe bounced around a little bit. This was just for me personally, very helpful to contrast with my past experience because my ex had been so extreme with his jobs. And looking back, even though when you're a contractor, it's not uncommon to have multiple jobs. You're being hired out to do work for multiple companies. But even his hopping around at very high profile jobs was unusual. It was too much. And he moved a lot more than what would be normal. I think it might've been even like once a year or so. Makes a lot more sense now knowing his full pattern. He was probably picking up and getting out of Dodge before his shenanigans couldn't catch up with him. (laughs) One funny thing is that I think Kirk and I had only been talking maybe a few weeks to a month-ish before. Well, no, we'd been talking for a year online. So keep in mind, I had a lot of backstory. We'll tell our story I'm not sure when I'll release, in what order I'll release these episodes. So I might've already told this story by the time this publishes, but he and I, well, he did not know who I was. I had known who he was for a 
good long time because a close friend of mine that I worked with knew of him. So I heard about him day in and day out for a long time by the time he and I connected. And we had been talking online back and forth on Facebook for a year before we actually started seriously getting to know each other. And I thought, oh, I might be open to dating this guy. So once we'd met in person and been talking for a few weeks and realized, wow, there's something different about this person. I had a trip booked to Tennessee to to do some scouting and try to figure out an area where I wanted to live. And he told me that his parents were willing to meet me for lunch because his parents, some family members of his, his immediate family had already moved to Tennessee a few years back. So they were already here and looking very forward to him moving out. Actually, I found out later that his mom was almost in tears when she found out, you know, Kirk had finally met this girl in California. And she said something later, like, I was ready to hate her because I thought, no, we finally got Kirk to agree to move out here. And he's now met this girl. And, you know, everybody's been waiting for Kirk to meet someone because he's such a catch. (laughs) And of course, he meets someone right after he finally decides to join the family in Tennessee. But no, the catch was I was moving to Tennessee also. So she didn't have to hate me. But his parents offered to meet up with my old roommate slash close friend. We're still great friends. She had already moved out to Nashville without me. So I was out there visiting her, looking for looking at neighborhoods and looking at areas I'd want to live. And we're out there and he goes, hey, this might be weird, but my parents said they'd be down to meet you for lunch if you were open to it. And honestly, I thought, bring it on. I think I've already seen the weirdest that something could get. This will either be my green light or my red light. And of course, my friend Karen was absolutely gay. I mean, she and I have traveled Europe together more than once. She's very adventurous. She is a, sorry for all you Enneagram haters. She's a seven on the Enneagram, if that explains anything. I'm a nine. So she's the one who initiates the adventures that I need to be planned for me. And then I will say yes to anything. So we ended up spending our entire Easter Sunday afternoon walking around with Kirk's parents. And we had a flipping blast. We talked nonstop all afternoon and it just meant a ton to me to see that. I mean, I thought, okay, either, either his parents are helicopter parents and they're wanting to scope me out beforehand without him, or they just are fun and spontaneous and willing to come out and meet me. And he is trusting enough to let them loose. And that was the case. He got revenge on me a couple of weeks later when he happened to be in Mexico for a friend's wedding. And my parents were in Mexico on vacation in the same area. So they met up without me and I was not able to be there to do any damage control whatsoever. So that was a trust fall. They had a blast. Another thing, and I'll compare this to many other experiences, not just my ex, my ex never left me guessing. That's for sure. That was part of the love bombing process. What I was going to say about Kirk was that he always followed through. This was something that was just really helpful based on having any experience in dating at all. I know everyone, nearly everyone who has experienced online dating or just any disappointing dating experiences can probably relate with this. He followed through and he never left me guessing. I wasn't smothered This wasn't a situation where I'm being swept off my feet and not given the chance to stop and think and get my 
emotions and thoughts together. He just never once left me guessing as to whether or not he was interested. He didn't really have any shame. He didn't play any games. He wasn't mysterious. I don't feel like you need to put on any sort of charm or mystery for the experience of liking someone to be magical in and of itself, if that makes sense. I think his genuine intentionality was, his genuine intentionality created enough butterflies for me that I didn't need the guessing games or the, is he into me or is he going to text me back? It was so refreshing to know that, I mean, I think we had gone out once or twice and I was about to go on that scouting trip to Tennessee when he, I found myself actually being disappointed that it was going to be a couple of weeks before I saw him because I think I was going to be gone and then he was going to be gone on a family trip or something. So last minute, he asked for another hangout just maybe two nights later after our second date, I think, right before I was going to leave town. And I thought, oh, I don't have time, but yes. And we ended up getting together and talking until late in the night. We went on a walk, I think, around the UC Davis campus. It's a huge area in California that we walked until late into the night. And when we got back to my apartment, he refused to come inside. I had to pee so bad. I had leftovers in my hand. I was freezing, was standing out in the alleyway by my apartment. And I was like, I just, I need to get inside and use the bathroom. And I think he was just nervous to come inside. He wanted to respect my space. He knew it was late. He wanted to get something out to say, like to tell me something. So I'm standing there shivering, holding my bladder, holding this box of leftovers, I think it was, while he insisted on keeping me there because he was, I, I, he would probably roll his eyes and correct me at this point, but I'm going to tell you my version. He got the words out that he really liked me and wanted to continue to get to know me, but he was trying to be respectful. He didn't say I'm trying to be respectful. You could just see it all over his face that he was nervous as heck. And he'll tell you this, words are not his favorite thing. He's an engineer. So giving this sort of speech, <laughs> he's an excellent teacher. He's not not good with his words. It's just that in a moment like this, when it comes to getting something out, it was a struggle. So he took a good long time to basically tell me, I like you. I would like to keep getting to know you. He told me later that he just felt like he had to get it out because he knew I was going to be in Tennessee. And, and who knows if I might meet someone or a guy would you know, see me somewhere and ask me out. And I thought, do you seriously think that I just will go places and men will line up? I love that you think that. That has never happened in my entire life. <laughs> if that did happen, I think my friends and I would be traveling a lot more and going out a lot more. I think I have a do not approach look. I have RBF. I've worked on it, but I have never been that girl that can be sitting at a bar and have someone approach me. I've been with friends that it happens to, and it's fascinating. It's like watching, watching a social experiment that I know nothing about and cannot relate with. <laughs> <laughs> but no one dares approach me. And I think I was told this in college once that I have like an F off face. I'm okay with that. I think it has spared me a lot of very awkward social interactions. And side note, I do actually enjoy eating alone. I don't care how sad or lonely or depressed I look. I thrive on it. I don't have to think about anything else. I can focus solely on the food. I don't have to think about my chewing. I don't have to think about dripping or making a mess because I do spill. 
every single time. And I will drip on my shirt. I love to sit solo and eat a meal and maybe read a book or scroll. Okay, I'm actually adding this audio clip in later. So it might sound a tad bit different. But I had to add right here, I realized I got off on this tangent about my bad RBF and how it's protected me from awkward, unwanted social interactions. And I never actually got back to finishing that little side story of him telling me, I like you and having trouble getting it out. I know I've mentioned that I knew where he stood, that he never left me guessing. But what I forgot to mention too, was that he was so respectful and treated me so much like a friend, not completely platonic, but he was, he just had this uncanny way. I don't expect this of everybody. I'm not saying that this is something necessarily that you should look for if you're single and trying to find someone, but he had an uncanny way of making me feel very unpressured. There was no set pace to this. You could tell he was really good at treating girlfriends well. It's probably because he has two sisters, but he saw me as a human and as a whole independent person outside of whatever potential relationship that he and I could have. So I always felt very free to make a decision around him, if that makes sense. This is very hard to explain because I've honestly <laughs> haven't really experienced it in a dating scenario because clearly we're going on dates. Clearly we're interested in each other, but I didn't feel that he was setting an emotional pace. So when he did finally tell me that he liked me and he was interested, I was partly shocked because while he'd been consistent and the pacing was just perfect, it was exactly what I needed. He never once made me feel like this was moving quickly I always felt like if I said, hey, I'm not feeling it, life would go just back to normal. There would be no awkwardness. There would I wouldn't have to defend myself. I wouldn't find myself in a situation that I had to backpedal out of. He treated me with respect, like a friend, like he genuinely wanted to get to know me as a person. And yes, we're constantly assessing whether or not we could be life partners, but also it was just really lighthearted and fun. I could sit back and relax and let him get to know me and me get to know him. I think that's part of what helped the process. Something that I've noticed other people have said that their exes did and mine did as well was to future talk. I, I There's a term for it. I can't remember what it is, but it's to start talking about future scenarios. Well, if we were together or one day or when we get married or we could do this, we could do that. He wasn't putting any expectations on us. So sometimes I thought, do you think I'm cute? <laughs> do you think I'm pretty? Are you attracted to me? Because <laughs> he was really, really good at walking that line of just, he didn't flirt. That's what it is. He didn't flirt. And he never once flattered me. It wasn't until it was clear that we were both romantically interested in each other that he got a little more bold. And I'll be honest, it made the little flirtatious compliments much more powerful, much more potent when you didn't get them at the beginning and then the tone changed and now you're both on the same page. I felt like I was getting a peek into a side of him that other people didn't, if that makes sense. And it was that much more special. I got a side of him that I really felt, I knew that I knew that it was reserved for me or someone in my position in his life and no one else. And that was huge. He didn't make, (laughs) 
There were no big, grand, larger-than-life promises. There was no flowery language that made life feel like it was a novel or we were in, we were the solo characters of our own romance movie and no one else would understand. And it's us against the world. There was nothing larger than life. I remember these really flowery texts that I would get from my ex. And I remember, I think I read one to my mom out loud in the car one time and she teared up. And I remember thinking, half of me thought, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And the other half of me thought, no one talks like this. So is he just on a different planet? Is this for real? I remember actually thinking, is this for real? But then I thought, what reason would he have for it to not be real? Because if he's faking it, he's going to look really cheesy. This would kind of be nauseating. So he must actually mean it. And I love words. Anyway, now I would sniff it out from a mile away and want to choke, but no flowery language. Very straightforward, very sweet, very genuine. And all that to say, my next note, which I think I've already summed up. So he's just very comfortable in his own skin, but without being overly confident. This is a personal confession, but a lot of people have asked me, what do you think attracted you to your ex? And I know what it was. A lot of it stemmed from an identity or I guess like a very hidden self-confidence issue where I subconsciously sought out people that were the life of the party or very charismatic. I have dated very big personalities in the past. And it took me a long time to realize that I did that because I thought that that's what I needed to bring me out or to help pave my life, if that makes sense almost because I couldn't do it on my own or I couldn't, not that I wanted a stage or a platform, but I thought if I'm going to go somewhere with my life, if I'm going to do something big with my life or create something, I'm going to need someone that's going to pave that path for me. If, uh, it's hard to explain. I, I think I just assumed that I didn't have it all in me. Kirk is that type of person that I think he has all these merits of his own, but he's very willing to sit back on the sideline and cheer someone else on. He doesn't desire spotlight. He doesn't feel challenged if someone else is taking up all of the air in the room. He doesn't feel the need to one-up someone. And I think it's sometimes, sometimes my ex was obvious about this. Other times he was subtle in that he was always one-upping people. And I remember someone pointing that out to me when we were together and I didn't see it. I just thought, honestly, I thought he's experienced a lot and some people relate to others and they connect with them by relating with them, by having things in common. So there are a lot of personality types out there where their way of connecting with others is to tell their similar experience or share their knowledge on something. And sometimes it can be received like they're trying to take the center stage and make it all about them and turn the topic on them when in reality, that's their way of connecting with you. That's what I thought my ex was doing. Looking back, he just had to know the most. He had to be the most connected. He had to have the most information or inside information on something. And he had to be the leading expert. And it did tend to silence other people. Another thing I thought of is that he he didn't really have unrealistic expectations of 
himself or of me or our relationship. He seemed to have a really healthy respect. I would even almost call it a fear because that's what I had to of jumping into the wrong marriage or the wrong relationship because while we both wanted to share our lives with someone, we had both separately built lives that we really loved. And we understood the gravity of committing that or joining it with someone else's. And we weren't necessarily in a hurry to change that or to make some of the sacrifices that you're required to make when you're joining your life with someone else. I remember thinking many times, yeah, I'm excited to share my life with someone and I can't wait to do this, but I'm going to miss a lot of aspects of what I have right now. And I'm not in a hurry to lose that at the same time. So it was this double-edged sword or this mix of emotions, kind of like what I'm feeling now, honestly, being pregnant and knowing we're going to have this beautiful child that I honestly didn't even know if I could have. Jeez. So clearly I'm really thankful. Pregnancy hormones. To see a mini Kirk, I used to think, I can't imagine not being able to make this man a father. He's amazing. He's so good with kids. He loves kids. He freaking volunteers in our kids' ministry at church. It's adorable, and I am not that good of a human. But I married one, so I look a lot better for it. He's just as scared of the sacrifice of parenthood as I am, which kills me. It's hilarious to me because he is such a natural with kids. They love him. He loves them. And I look at him, and I'm like, how do you know what to do with them? (laughs) How do you just innately know? I grew up around kids. My mom did daycare. I babysat. I volunteered in church ministry. I taught Sunday school for a while. I was in the nursery. But I don't love everyone's kids. Not everyone. And I don't always know what to do with everyone's kids either. Sometimes I like them. Sometimes I'm like, I don't know what to do with you. You're your parents' problem. I'm not going to edit this. And I know I'm not the only one that feels that way. Anyway, we're older We're both 34. I'll be 35 by the time I deliver. So I will be considered a geriatric mother. And I've known I can't imagine life without kids. But at the same time, I I understand the gravity of how nothing will ever be the same. And there is, for many people, a natural mourning process of that old life. I know the new life is going to be beautiful. And I know that once I'm there, I am never going to want to change it. I'm never going to want to go back. But at the same time, life pre-children will have been so full for the both of us. And we both have traveled a lot, but we haven't traveled together. So there is that aspect, aspect of things where we just assume, you know, it's, it's easier without kids. But too bad, too late. We're going to have to figure out travel with kids because we're both not willing to give that up. We still want to experience it together. It just might not be together as non-parents. So that was a huge diversion. Next point. With him, I don't necessarily have this instinctive fear of disagreeing with him or challenging him. He doesn't get defensive. Like he's okay with the idea of being wrong. And I know that a trait of narcissists is that they can't handle boundaries or being told no. It's almost annoying. He is always the first to apologize. We haven't had many big blow-ups necessarily. We've definitely had disagreements. We've had long discussions where we've had to get to the bottom of what each other meant. Thankfully, we're both really good at separating emotions. I mean, I've definitely had, I have had situations where I, I don't use the word lightly. I have a healthy respect for the word triggered. 
I didn't realize I was triggered until much later. I wasn't really willing to admit it. But there have been some moments, but mostly while we were dating, where he would say or do something that was a direct reflection of something I'd experienced with my ex. And before I could even react mentally, my body was reacting. It's like the body remembers. And I would be freaking out. And in my head, I know it's not the same. I know he's not the same person, but I I remember what I remember and I would freak out about it. Or he would say something and I only associate that with one motive or one mindset. And so I would be very bothered by something he would say. So we'd have to dig down to the bottom and figure out his true meaning. Well, where are you coming from? What do you mean when you say that? What I appreciate is we both come at it from a desire to understand rather than to change the other person's mind, which is crazy. I'm very, very thankful for it. My ex would pop off on something later, half-heartedly apologize, but then say, but, and there was always a caveat. It was, but you drive me to this point or, but you are, I just shouldn't have said it that way or that kind of thing. He would apologize in a way that implied that it was still justified. It was still called for. He's just a lowly sinner and wasn't, you know, wasn't walking in righteousness in that moment. (laughs) Something stupid like that. So Kirk's apologies are not a bait and switch type apology where he's really only apologizing to make me feel bad or to make me apologize or as a way to imply, oh, something I hate is when someone will apologize for something that they darn well know you had no idea. They'll say, oh, I'm I'm sorry for being so upset at you. And they know that you have no idea what they're upset about. So they're baiting you to say, oh, I'm sorry. What did I do? This is not that situation. So it's very, it's just nice. It's safe. It's comforting knowing that he doesn't think too highly of himself or that his ego isn't so fragile that he can't handle it. Hey, that really pissed me off. And sometimes it's annoying because when he apologizes first, I realize I have something to apologize for and I don't do well with that. You know, I'll talk a little bit about the dating experience with him and moving because it was short. It was fast. We... Well, we started talking early in the year, I think of 2020. And then I honestly put him off. I was going through a lot. And well, I'll talk about this in my episode with him, but I was two years out from my breakup. So healing wise, I was doing a lot better, but life circumstances, I was kind of in this place where dating was not high priority. And with everything going on with the new job and moving and COVID happening, And I thought he lived a little further away, which normally is not a problem. I've done long distance multiple times. But in the space that I was in, I was like, something's either going to land in my lap or it ain't happening. So I told him, I'm sorry, I'm in no position to date. But we did stay connected on Facebook. I only did that because I already knew a lot about who he was. And we had tons of mutual friends. I want to say it was a number of people that I thought, okay, I could get some good intel on this guy if I really wanted, but I already have plenty. So let's stay connected on Facebook. Then by the time I decided to move to Tennessee, he had no idea. I posted something on Facebook about me moving to Tennessee so that extended friends and family would know. And he commented and said he was moving to Tennessee as well. Kind of like, what did he say? He said, Tennessee or bust. And I thought, nah, no way. You? It's not normally my MO to message first, but I, I jumped right into messaging him and I went, wait a minute, tell me a little bit more about this. So we got talking and he had already been highlighted as someone special to me. For the year prior, I had been on a couple of trips with like my sister and our friend and 
whenever he would come up, because he and I would message on Facebook a few times, not, not much, but if something would happen or if I would post something or whatever, he would post something, we would talk about it a little bit. So we were learning more and more about each other's perspectives. And my, I think it was my sister and friend pointed out that whenever I talked about him, there was just something a little bit different. And I noticed that I always felt internally, I would say spiritually, mentally, emotionally, it always felt like open, like clear skies, if that makes sense. A lot of just stillness. There was no anxiety in me. There was no, I I had no friction. That's the word. There was no friction. And previously, meeting someone would feel like a slight tick or diversion off whatever I was doing at the time. I don't want to say derailment. Sometimes it was, but meeting someone or someone always felt like a slight tick off course where I would suddenly look over here and a lot would change and not necessarily for the better. But when I would talk to Kirk, I had none of that feeling. That's really hard to explain. By the time we started talking seriously, both of us were in a place in life where we're a little bit older and we were both planning on a very serious move across the country. So we knew getting to know each other, stakes were high. I put him through the ringer when it came to our first date, him having to meet my family, knowing my background, my experiences. He took it all in stride. None of it was any big deal in that he he handled it with care but he didn't freak out. And if he was freaking out internally, I had absolutely no idea. He took it seriously, but thoughtfully. In preparing for this move, I got to see he was the one who suggested even more than I thought about. I mean, I love time with my family, but I lived in the same small town in this time for the last two years before he and I started dating. I had lived in my hometown and I had just moved out of my parents' house I have great parents, but when you're in your 30s and you've lived alone for 10 years, moving back home was not my idea of an ideal healing experience. Looking back, I know that it was best for me and I'm very thankful to have had that. Thankful that they were open to it and made it such a healing time, but it was not what I wanted. (laughs) And by the time I did finally get out into my own apartment, it was still in my hometown. So I still felt like I was stuck in like an old life. And he was the one who suggested before we left, let's go have lunch with your family. Let's stay the last, I think the last couple nights after I had moved out, maybe one or two nights before, after I'd moved out of my apartment and we had moved him out of his house. He's the one who suggested we spend those nights at my parents' house and stay there so that my parents could get that time with us before we go. Seeing how intentional he was about meeting with friends, meeting with family before we left, introducing me to people, making the time to drive out and get that time with people before we left, said a lot to me. It said a lot to my parents and my family. It just showed his values. And when it came time to actually pack up and move across the country, I had a full apartment and a dog who was not a low maintenance dog by any means. And I had just gotten her spayed days before we were leaving. So she was still hyped up on medication. She was not supposed to move around much. She was wearing a little surgical onesie to cover up her sutures. This was a very delicate situation. Meanwhile, it's 110,000 degrees outside. And we're having to figure out, we had my car Are we going to ship stuff? Are we going to get a truck? Are we going to get a moving company? Are we going to get a pod? 
we ended up renting a Penske truck and getting a trailer to put my car on the back. And we just loaded up my car and the Penske truck. He headed all of that up. I mean, I would look for deals and we really worked together on arranging this, but he had to move his entire life and house into a storage unit and then go stay at a friend's house while we were then packing up my apartment. So we had to move him out of his house in 110 degree weather into a storage unit and then move my stuff out and then put it in the truck and then go back out to that storage unit when the time came to actually leave, unload that storage unit into the truck. Seeing how he thoughtfully packed up the truck, worked with my parents. I mean, we are dripping sweat, schlepping stuff up and downstairs. My apartment was up a set of stairs. So taking everything in and out and seeing him like at the top of the pile of stuff in the truck. And one moment, my mom steps out of my apartment. She's standing up on the deck. I'm down on the ground. Kirk is way up high in the truck, taking stuff that my dad and siblings are handing him. And my mom out of nowhere said something like, wow, Sarah, you really picked a good time to get a boyfriend. (laughs) I went, yep. (laughs) I'll keep him for as long as he's useful. Driving through Route 66, you know, along the Southern half of the United States with absolutely insane weather, no gas stations for miles. I kept thinking, I was going to do this myself with this dog in a moving truck. I just thought before I had met Kirk, I was going to make this move myself. But anyway, the timing to be able to do it with Kirk worked out perfectly. And just the little arrangements of figuring out where we would stay and where we would eat. And I think at one point during the trip, I came down with the worst migraine I've had in my life. And this was a learning opportunity for me. I don't enjoy crying, which I don't really know many people who do. But I think I was trying really hard to not be an inconvenience. And we were at some point in the drive when my head hurt so bad. It was so awful that I started tearing up. I think we parked to go get gas and I just, I had to cry. But unfortunately, when you have a terrible migraine, sometimes crying can make it worse because of the sinus pressure. And so it was just getting so much worse in my forehead. And he just goes, please, finally, would you just cry? Like, just let this out. It's okay to be in pain. It's okay to be uncomfortable. Life doesn't work like that. It's okay to not be okay. And I just felt like, I wish this wasn't the case, but I could still hear my ex in the back of my head saying, oh, my little snowflake, or oh, my little Frenchie, my delicate flower. And it wasn't endearing. It was a way to put me down. We learned a lot in that drive. And then we stopped and saw friends and family along the way of his. And then his parents showed up for me when we got to Tennessee. I was moving to Nashville. He was moving to East Tennessee. He had bought a house out there for work. And I stuck with my plan initially to go straight to Nashville. So his parents drove out two and a half, three hours, I think, from where they were living at the time, got a hotel room. They brought his dad's truck and a bunch of moving gear and helped move me into my apartment, stayed overnight, showed back up to my apartment the next morning to make sure that I was fully unpacked, not just basics like bed and you know stuff to get through the night, but I mean, unpacking and organizing my kitchen, installing shelves, making this into a home before they left me there. It was like having my own parents there. Then we all left together and drove out to Kirk's house, which was almost three hours away, and then got him moved in there. So that's why we bonded so quickly and went through a lot together. So that was in early September of 21, got engaged in December. 
And then our plan was to have a wedding back out in California, big full-size wedding, all friends and family. Cause I thought, why would you not? I used to kind of want just a small wedding. And I thought, well, now that I understand what it's like to be planning a wedding everyone is excited about and you genuinely want to party with everybody. I didn't realize I didn't have that before. I thought I did. But now that I had the real thing, I knew the difference. We wanted to party with everyone and celebrate. I thought Kirk has so many people that love him. And I have so many people that have been cheering me on and waiting to see this happen. Why would we not want to party with everybody? And we tried. Let me tell you, planning a wedding from across the country on a budget post-pandemic when everybody's trying to do the exact same thing was a total nightmare. I had spreadsheets and lists of places that I had called, places that I had been rejected from that weren't available or were available in another two years or for $20,000, face booking fee. And I'm thinking that's that's three times what I want to spend. I want to spend money on the honeymoon. I do not want to spend money on one day that we're probably not really going to remember because it's going to be a blur. And after genuinely trying, we thought we can't do this. So we pretty much decided to elope. And we just had a tiny little ceremony in Nashville with just immediate friends and family. My parents, his parents, our siblings. And I had my old roommate, Karen, there, the one who had gone out with me to meet his parents because she lived in Nashville. She was a few miles away and I, I wanted the help. And it was so nice to have her there. And then two of Kirk's friends, they called me and asked if they could surprise him and show up flew out from California to Tennessee for less, I think, than 24 hours just to support him on his wedding day. He did not know about it until they showed up to his rental, like his Airbnb with his family, the day of our wedding. And it was absolutely beautiful. The very next morning we took off on our honeymoon. That's where we spent most of our budget. And we were there for like 10 days. (laughs) So it wasn't your normal wedding. I wouldn't do it any differently. I wish in a perfect world we could have had everybody there. And if anybody's familiar with the rental scene in Nashville and everybody raising rates to keep up with the rising rates around them, you'll feel my pain here. My rent was going to skyrocket in a matter of a few weeks and I had to get the heck out. So we were like, look, we know we want this. We know we do not want to spend full price on a wedding here in a few months. Let's just get me out of this dang apartment and elope and get done with it. So it really worked out great. Worked out great for me. Worked out great for him. Everybody was glad. And that was that. It was also good to see, I think it goes without saying how much my family enjoyed him, which meant a lot to me. In all of our flaws and imperfections and his flaws and imperfections, everyone genuinely enjoys being around each other. I know that is not something that everyone gets. And it's not, depending on your family dynamic, it's not necessarily a necessity or a requirement for a a good life partner for you. But for me, I knew what I needed to see. With my past experience, I knew what I was hoping for. And I knew that that was something I was getting in Kirk. That's why I felt absolute peace about moving forward with him. And our wedding day was one of the most lighthearted, peaceful, and fun days that I can remember in my life. By the time it was over, everyone was like, oh, wow, that was it? And (laughs) I'd rather leave people wanting more, I guess. Those are the green flags that led me to knowing that I could marry Kirk and that this was right. There are some highlights on my Instagram, if you haven't seen them already, just of our wedding day. And I think my dad's speech, 
is in that highlight. <laughs> I laugh because he says something like, although this, this, what did he say? Something about this being, this wasn't on his timeline. It's when, happening when some people would consider later in life or something like that. <laughs> He's not wrong, <laughs> but I wouldn't change a thing. You know, when he was younger, people were getting married a lot younger. And nowadays we're just waiting longer and we're waiting longer to have kids. If you had to experience the dating scene these days, you'd probably wait a little longer too. Just saying. Thank you for listening. If you have any other questions, you know, my DMs on Instagram are open. My Instagram account is space and purpose. And you can always email me to spaceandpurpose at gmail.com. If you have a similar experience where you've gone through a toxic relationship, it doesn't have to be romantic. It could be a family member, a coworker, someone else's significant other where you experienced triangulation or manipulation or have felt like you had the wool pulled over your eyes and it affected your life, I would welcome you to reach out. I'm working on a process to make it a little easier because it can be intimidating or it can feel... Telling your story can feel overwhelming or kind of like a, why do I want to relive that? But the validation is really important. And I think it can be really healing to tell something from start to finish even if you don't feel that you have full closure or that the experience is necessarily over yet, it's a way of popping the lid closed and putting a little bow on something and sharing it with others to give you an unexpected sense of closure. I think I have heard that from some guests that I previously had on my podcast. They were surprised at the feeling of closure that it brought, which surprised me. Shouldn't have. I experienced the same thing when I told my story before. It just feels redemptive. And even if you don't have total closure or answers or you don't feel like you're completely out of the woods from your experience yet, there is still something about knowing that it's already validating others that brings a sense of redemption and, okay, at least it's being used for something. Thank you for being here, for subscribing, and for coming along with me as I learn the world of podcasting and this community takes shape. I have so many incredible stories coming next that honestly, I'm having a hard time waiting each week to share the next one with you. If you found value in these conversations and you haven't already left a review, it would mean the world if you took a quick moment to write one or just share this with a friend who would appreciate it. And if you found this episode to be impactful, post about it on Instagram and tag me at space and purpose. I would love to hear from you. 